Well, I'd like to speak this morning on the Christian teaching, doctrine of adoption, the adoption of the believer. In 1 John 3 verse 1, um, John exhorts us to behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed that is lavishly given, um, that we should be called the sons of God. Behold, one of John's favourite words, of course, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And here he's saying, Behold, in other words, closely look at, study what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. And this closely mirrors his statement in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, where he writes, But as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So John uh, immediately in, in his epistle points us to the origin or the ground of adoption, which is the love of the Father. And this merciful act of adoption by the Father is explained um, by the Apostle Paul in um, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. 3 to 5. And if we turn there quickly, um, again, Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 5. In verse 3, Paul says, All spiritual blessing comes from the Father through Christ. And then verse 4, he explains that the Father has chosen us in Christ before the world was made to be perfectly holy. And then in verse 5, he writes, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. A lot of Christians, I'm talking about Christians, obviously the world has a problem, but a lot of Christians have um, trouble with the idea of God electing or choosing people to be saved. But it might help to understand that verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 1 need to be read together, they need to be taken together. In fact, um, in the Greek text, verses 3 to 12 of Ephesians 1 is all one massive sentence. There's no break in it at all. I don't know how you can hold your breath for that long. But, um, it is when you take things in isolation and emphasise them to death beyond other teachings that we get into error. But verses, for example, verses 4 and 5 need to be taken together. So the, the point about election is that from the perspective of adoption, the concept of choosing or selecting or electing makes absolute sense when you think of what adoption is. It would be totally senseless, wouldn't it, if you took away 
the idea of choosing. It, made, it would reduce it to something that made no sense at all. And Paul is saying that God chose us so that he could adopt us. He chose us so that he could adopt us. Adoption is all about choosing who you wish to become part of your family. Adoption is when you choose someone to be your child. It's when you choose and take another child from another family and bring that child into your family. Christian salvation means that we are chosen by God out of a world of sinners to be his adopted children. And if you've ever let that dawn on you, behold what manner of love, John says, that the Father has bestowed that we should be called the sons of God. So predestination, election, is a loving gracious act of adoption. And that's a much more positive way to preach election, predestination, Calvinism if you like. It's a loving, purposeful, graceful, saving act of God the Father. And there are a few things this morning that I want to say about this Christian teaching of adoption. Uh, and we can't cover everything, and, um, and, and you'll, you'll be able to say to me afterwards, well, you missed this out and you missed that out. But the first point I want to make is that we really do need to be adopted by God. Mm-hmm. Because man is not naturally part of God's family. Man... Is, is in a pitiable condition by nature. We're, we're orphan-like. We are like orphans. And that orphan-like condition is everywhere presented throughout the Bible. In John 14, verse 18, the, the, the correct translation, in fact, the King James is in the margin, the correct translation is I, this is Jesus speaking, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, the Lord Jesus realised that we are orphans by nature. There's a, there's a very amazing text in Ezekiel chapter 16, where the Lord God describes the condition of Israel by nature. And this is what um, God spoke through the mouth of Ezekiel. He says, In the day thou wast born, thy navel, that's the umbilical cord, was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to suckle thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee to have compassion on thee, but thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee, 
polluted in thy own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thine in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Well, that's a terrible state to be in, isn't it? But spiritually speaking, that's what we are like outside of Christ. We're in an open field, naked, uncared for by, by Satan who has control over us. And we're in our own blood, wretched, pitiable. That's our spiritual condition by nature. Paul the Apostle describes the unsaved sinner as being without Christ, as, as an alien and a stranger, having no hope. So by nature, by ordinary birth, we are not part of God's family. And we should not, in fact, just understand this in terms of our wretched condition. An orphan is not responsible for being an orphan. It's not their fault. But we are orphans who are responsible for our own condition. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul describes sinners as the children of disobedience. We are disobedient children. We are rebels and are outside of God's family deliberately, purposefully. In fact, Jesus taught that if God were really our Father, we would love Him. He told the Jewish hearers, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. See, the truth this morning, dear friends, is that you and I are either in God's family or in Satan's. We either have God as our father or Satan. We either do God's works or we do the works of Satan, the father of lies. And that's why we desperately need to be adopted into God's family. But what a joy it is this morning to know that the Father is so full of love that he adopts sinners into his family. God is an adopting, adopting Father. That is, his heart is to adopt sinners into his family. And every second of every day, he's adopting wretched, lost orphans into his family. And every second of every day, he becomes a father to new people into his family. And everyone who comes to him, the father never turns away. Jesus said that. Jesus said, all that the father hath given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. If you're seeking God, seeking salvation, hold on to that promise. All that come to me I will never cast away. It's a cast iron guarantee. Now in my old job, before I retired from it, I worked in children's services and I took several children through the process of adoption. 
And in most cases, it was a joyful thing. Um, and particularly when the process was complete. For the children that were old enough to understand, it was often a relief to have a permanent home at last. After having maybe months and sometimes years of moving from one foster carer to another. To now have a parent, parents, you can stay with and call your own. And for the adoptive parents, it's nearly always, it was always a joyful time of great joy when the adoption was complete. And after the court granted the adoption order, a date was set always for what was called a celebration hearing, where it was a chance for the adoptive families to, to visit the court and to meet the judge, and the judge would give the uh, new parents a certificate and invite the family and friends to take photos uh, in the court and so on. It was a celebration of this adoption being complete. But you know, from a spiritual point of view, the Bible says that God the Father and indeed the whole of heaven celebrates when a sinner is saved, when an adoption is complete, when a new orphan comes into the family of God. And God will rejoice over you. This morning, if you come into his family, if you respond to the gospel offer, which is freely offered in, in God and in the Bible and through the church, all who might wish to come to him, he will adopt, he will include and become your father. So that was the first one thing I wanted to say, that adoption is really something that uh, we, do, we need. We have seen that God predestined us, predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. He chose to adopt us. If you're a Christian this morning, you're adopted, God chose you for adoption. But what does that mean? What does adoption, this doctrine of adoption mean? Well, in order to really understand adoption, we need to, um, I don't know, um, we almost need to zoom out and then zoom in again. So if we zoom out, first of all, um, in its widest context, adoption is one of God's acts of grace involved in the application of salvation to a new believer. In reform teaching, in the reform tradition, salvation, redemption, is divided into two parts. And two Latin phrases are used, old classical Latin phrases in fact, are used to describe this. The first is called the Historia Salutis, which is Latin for the history of salvation. And the second part is the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. So, 
Reformed theology in terms of salvation falls into those two headings. The Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, refers to the accomplishment, the achievement of redemption. It refers to the historical and the future historical works of God in the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, Pentecost, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. Those acts of God by which he achieves salvation for his church. That is the Historia Salutis. Things that God did, they're in history, they will be in the future. Things that he achieved through Christ, his Son. But all those things are, are hopeless to us unless there is an application to our lives. Unless all of the benefit of all of that saving work is applied to an individual believer. And that's then we come to the order salutis. The order of salvation as it is applied to the individual. So this is not about the accomplishment of redemption, it's about the application of redemption. And Paul gives a, a condensed version of this. It is condensed because things are missed out. Um, but he gives a condensed version of this in, in Romans 8, if you turn there. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. This is a, a model, really, of the order salutis. Verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. See, that is the application, the order of salvation. Now, I'm, I'm going through this so that we can understand the doctrine. Just bear with me for a second. This order of salvation is a logical order rather than a time-based order. So it's not as if we are called or born again one year and then we're justified ten years later to take it to extreme. Everything happens together in one, at once. But in a logical sense they are, there is a sequence. It's not a time sequence, but it is a logical sequence. It's all one event of God saving a sinner. But within that one event there are different aspects. There are different elements and each one, each element is not exactly the same as the other. So there are things that are distinct to the new birth that you cannot say about justification. There are things that are distinct about sanctification that you cannot say about adoption. 
and so on. And yet, each one depends upon the other, and they are one package, if you like, of salvation. So you can emphasize one above another. But there is, I want to say, elements, aspects of each part of salvation which are unique and distinct. And tonight, tonight this morning, we are taking just one part of that tapestry of salvation, adoption. So what is adoption? We've established that it is part of the application of salvation to an individual. But what can we say the Bible teaches about adoption? Well, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is the, the um, basis at least of the catechism that we follow, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 34, the answer to question 34, the Puritans said that adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So there are two parts there, isn't there? The first part emphasises that adoption is God receiving us or including us into the number of the sons of God. In other words, adoption is a divine act whereby a believer is taken from a, an alien family and brought into the family of God. Or we could say, putting it differently, it is the act of God the Father in adoption, in the act of, of adoption, God the Father becomes the Father of his own people. Well, from our perspective, we could say it is the act, in the act of, the, of adoption, God becomes to us our Father. So adoption is a change in our relationship to God. By nature, we, are, we have a wrong, we have a broken relationship with God. In adoption, we are given a completely new and wonderful relationship to God. Adoption changes our position with God. Our relationship with Him is altered. Well, that's what happens in human adoption, of course. You have a child in a broken family, a family that can't care for that poor child and is brought into an adoptive family and the relationship between that child and the parent is changed, now totally altered legally. That adoptive parent is legally as much a father to that child as if that child was born into the family. In divine adoption also there is a legal 
change in the one who is adopted. Adoption by itself, just taking that one element of salvation, does not change us internally, it doesn't change our nature, it doesn't sanctify us, not in and of itself. But what adoption does, it changes our legal status with God. The new birth is a change of our human nature, but adoption is a change of our relationship with God. What a wonderful thing. Now we can't separate adoption from the new birth and justification, all those other things. Um, but in, a, in, a, in its logical sequence, and in its distinction from the other elements of salvation, adoption creates a change in our relationship with God. As John said, we are given the right and the power to become the sons of God. Behold what manner of love he exclaims in his epistle. When he's, when he's dwelling on this, he says, behold, this is incredible. We are taken out of the world, lost, orphan-like, wretched, pitiable, discarded in a field of our own blood. And God walks by and he looks down and he takes pity and he lifts us up and he adopts us into his family. That's what being a Christian, becoming a Christian really means. The second part of the um, answer to question 34 in the Shorter Catechism emphasised that the act of God in adoption creates a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So this is the second aspect of adoption, is that when God adopts us, he changes our relationship with him, he's now our father, but he also gives us all the privileges and rights that accrue from being one of his sons. And when I say son, I mean daughters as well, of course. So the grace of adoption bestows not only the status, but also the privilege of being a son or daughter of the living God. The adopted child, and I'm talking now in the human sense as well, the human child who is now adopted has the same rights of inheritance as the birth children of the family. The new son or daughter has the legal right to inherit the treasures of the father. And that is why Paul describes Christians as heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That makes no sense, of course, unless you're adopted. But because we're adopted, we, we, have, this, we, we have the inheritance of the Son of God. Because we are brought into the family of God as adopted children. So what is this inheritance? 
What does this inheritance mean? Well, Peter, of course, speaks of this in 1 Peter 1, and we won't spend time on it. But he explains that this inheritance that the adopted child comes into is not gold, uh, but something far better than gold. It's an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, that's reserved in heaven for us. Inflation can't get at it. Rust can't get at it. Um, it's something reserved and preserved for the adopted child. It's not property. This inheritance is all the subjective benefits of salvation. It's all the benefits of Christ's work. That's our inheritance as adopted children. Um, the Apostle Paul, we need again now to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, where Paul explains in, in, in those verses, he gives detail about adoption and the privileges that come with it. So listen carefully to, or even better still turn to it. Galatians 4, um, verses 4 to 7. He says, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I wonder if you see that, that the consequence of being adopted is that you come into the inheritance. And what is the inheritance? The inheritance is the Holy Spirit in your hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. I want to say something now vitally important and something I know that I could easily be misunderstood by saying. And um, I say this as someone who loves the Reformed faith and loves Reformed theology and has been in it for most of my life. But there is a great weakness in, in our tradition in that as a result of standing against the errors and excesses in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movements, we do tend to underestimate the importance of the Holy Spirit in our teaching and in our practice. You see, in Paul's teaching, it is no exaggeration to say that the whole point, the whole point of being a Christian, the whole point of coming into adoption, the whole point of coming into adoptive inheritance in Christ is to receive the Holy Spirit and to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
It is because we are sons that God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. I just want to show some evidence for that. Just look quickly at verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3 where it says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What was, in other words, Paul is saying is that the whole promise of the, of the Old Testament, the whole Abrahamic promise and covenant had an end game. It had a point. It had, it had a goal. It had a promise to be fulfilled. And what was that? What was that promise? It was <clears throat> that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's why God has saved us, dear friends. That we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So never underestimate the Holy Spirit. Let us never call the Holy Spirit it. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. And you and I have come into a promise, an inheritance that is part of adoption, whereby through adoption we come into God's family and we are given the promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. To be a Christian is to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Peter in his sermon in Acts 2, speaking of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, sums up the whole point of Christian salvation. Verse 33, Thereby, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And so this means, dear friends, that right now, in the present, the Christian inherits the promise. The very old, ancient, prophetic promise of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. I want to briefly zoom down a bit on this aspect of, of adoption. Namely the receiving of the Spirit whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In Romans 8 verses 15 and 16, if you can look there. Romans 8, 15 and 16. Paul explains that the grace of adoption includes the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fact that we really are children of God. He says that we have received what? The Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of adoption. What an amazing thing. We have received the Holy Spirit of adoption. 
Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit, smallest, that we are the children of God. Almost identical words, aren't they, to Galatians 4, verse 6, which we read earlier. So what does all this mean? What's being said? Well, firstly, the promise of the Spirit is so closely connected to the inheritance that comes from being adopted that the Holy Spirit can be called and is called the Spirit of Adoption. So closely connected is adoption and the promise of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit, one of his names, capital S, is the Spirit of Adoption. And secondly, as a result of receiving the Holy Spirit of Adoption, the true Spirit-filled Christian cries out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And this, although it's respectful, to call God Abba, it does assume an incredible amount of family connection and intimacy. The Christian, you see, the true Christian, the Christian who has the spirit of adoption within them, moves way beyond just knowing God as creator. That's how most decent religious types think of God and it's fine as far as it goes. They think of God as their creator and they, they pay him some respect. That's great. But the Christian, the saved Christian knows God in a far more intimate way than that. We know God as Father. Jesus said, when you pray, pray after this manner, our Father which art in heaven. You see, this speaks of um, a filial, familial love. The love of a child for a parent. And I want to ask you whether you know God in this way. You see, if, if you're a Christian, you're adopted, and the Holy Spirit of adoption is in you, and you should be crying, there should be something within you, like an automatic reflex or response, which cries out, Father. Is the spirit of adoption within you? In verse 16 of Romans 8, it talks about the witness of the Holy Spirit to our spirits. The spirit of adoption enables the adopted believer to enjoy assurance of salvation. You see, we should know that we are a child of God. It is not for the Christian to spend time Wondering, doubting whether they are saved or not. Now, this is something which is not uncommon in Christians, true Christians, but it's not what God wants for us. And I know in some of the families that I work with where a child was adopted, gone through all the whole court process, the papers signed, the certificate given, 
The child has the bedroom. The child is there around the table with the rest of the family, but never connects. Never feels that those parents are my parents. Never feels in the heart that that father is my father. Legally they are. They have the right to the inheritance. They have the right to the same rights as, as every child around the table, yet something in their hearts doesn't feel part of the family. Do you know many Christians are like that? They've never known God as Father. But you see, whether you feel it or not, He is. And, and you need to come to God and say, You're my Father. And the spirit of adoption is within me. And I want to cry, Abba, Father. Do you know, it's not always... Uh, you see, when that word, cry, in Romans 8, it's the same word that Jesus used upon the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a similar word in the Hebrew too, when it says, this poor man cried unto the Lord. It's when we're at our lowest, when we're in trouble, that we can cry, Abba, Father. It's not always when we're in a comfortable place. It's when we're in a difficult place that something within us cries out, Abba, Father. Dear friends, I want you to think really this morning, finally, about the implications of, of all of this, what we've said about the doctrine of adoption. I think one of the implications, first of all, for the Christian is, is this, that if God, if we truly believe that God before the world began, decided to adopt us into his family, to become our father. If he has given us this inheritance, then surely we can trust him for all the other decisions that he makes for our lives, all the other providences. Surely we can trust with love and trust and accept all the orderings of his divine guidance and consider them to be the actions and decisions of the loving Father in heaven. You see, the writer to the Hebrews understood this. He says in verse in chapter 12, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure, endure chastening, God dealeth with, dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth? 
You see, the problems that come into our lives can throw us, they can knock us off our feet. It can be health or whatever it might be, a financial problem. Something can just come from nowhere, blindside us. And yet, we're in the dark, we don't understand. But you know, for the true Christian, what can they fall back on? They can fall back on the fact that they have a father who decided to adopt them, to bring them into his family and make correct decisions for their upbringing and benefit them and future life. And if we can trust God for salvation, we can trust him for all things. Secondly, and although we haven't really had time to look at Galatians properly today, there's a lot of teaching about adoption in Galatians for you to look at. But the main thing that Galatians teaches is that through adoption into God's family, the Christian has a radically different relationship to God's law. The Christian is discharged from all obligation to satisfy God's justice through keeping of the law. It's impossible anyway, in fact. But God doesn't remove the obligation to keep God's law from the unbelieving. The law condemns and kills. But once you move from being a slave to being a son, your, your relationship to the law is completely different. You now serve the Father and obey His laws out of love. And you no longer need to obey in order to earn something from God. The Christian has moved from bondage to liberty, Paul teaches in Galatians. You see, the law is a terrible burden, bondage, if you're relying on it as the way to be saved. But it's a, it's a wonderful blessing if, it, if it's you, it, as a Christian, because it's your way of pleasing God, keeping his commandments by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means when he says you are no longer under law, but under grace. It doesn't mean law has no reference to you anymore, but he means your relationship to it has changed. We receive through adoption, inheritance, all the riches of the Father as a free gift. We don't have to earn them. We receive them by dint of being his son or daughter. That's a very different thing, isn't it? To become a Christian is to lay aside all your puny efforts at self-reform. To say that only in Christ and what he has achieved and only through the Spirit what he applies can my heart be made free and live. And then finally to the unsaved, maybe to the seeker after God. I want to say that this doctrine of adoption completely blows out the water the idea that God is a universal Father 
that God is the Father of everyone. It blows out of the water the sister heresy that all will ultimately be saved, universal salvation. But to be strictly fair, there is a sense in which God can be said to be the Father of all men through creation and providence. There are in fact only three scriptures of the New Testament which say that. But generally speaking, almost universally speaking, the term Father and the term Son are reserved for the specific relationship created in adoption between a believer and a father. In a saving sense, God is only the father of his own people through adoption. So if you're not a Christian today, don't be like so many people and presume on the fatherhood of God. He's not your father in a saving sense until or unless you become his. Don't presume on the fatherhood of God or his protection in life or in eternity. You have to be in Christ. You have to be in the family. Ultimately, and this is my last point, and I think I've already said it really, the doctrine of adoption reminds us that there is a great division in mankind, in humanity. There's a great division between those who are adopted into God's family and those who are outside of God's family. For those who have Satan as their father and those who have God as their father. In his parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus speaks of a the division between the lost and the redeemed. And at the end of time, he talks about a great separation between the wheat and the tares, and in another parable about the goat, between the goats and the sheep. But that separation, division, already exists. It's just confirmed at the end of time. There is no universal fatherhood of God. There is no universal brotherhood of man. The question you need to face this morning is which family do I belong to? Because which family you belong to will determine where you will spend eternity. It really will. And so this morning, dear friends, let us rejoice. Let us behold, study closely, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Amen.